You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. Alan Chews is the voice of books for NPR's All Things Considered. His latest work of nonfiction is A Trance After Breakfast. His latest work of fiction is an ebook called Paradise or Eat My Face. His latest novel is Song of Slaves in the Desert. Thank you for joining me, Alan. Always a pleasure, Rick. Alan, is Song of Slaves in the Desert out in trade paperback? Yes, yet? it is. Mm-hmm. Very good. Well, if you didn't pick it up in hardcover, it's definitely worth picking up in trade paperback. It's a wonderful novel that has bits of magic realism and also just a fabulous story. Thanks. Let's talk about the three books from last year to begin this year. Yeah. And we'll start with the book that ended up winning. Was it a National Book Award? Am I correct on that? Yes, the National Book Award winner, uh, Louise Erdrich. Louise Erdrich, The Roundhouse. And this is a, another novel set in her... Indian Reservation universe. Mm -hmm. And it really is a universe. And I talked with her a little bit about this. And this is a very careful bit of world building she's been doing throughout her career. Yes. Yes. It's uh, her, her reservation is the equivalent of Yoctabatafa County. I mean, there are characters that cycle in and out, families that cycle in and out. It's got a long history and, uh, and also goes as far into the present day as he can get it without writing science fiction about it. I mean, this, is, this new book is, is clearly uh, one of the volumes uh, that deals with modernity on the reservation and deals with legal questions that are quite interesting. The, the father of, of the, the main character is a, an Indian judge, and the son will grow up to become an Indian lawyer, and their mother keeps is a record keeper at the tribal uh, headquarters on the reservation. And uh, someone commits a horrifying, violent act against her. And that sets in motion the, the rest of the novel. How to deal with this terrible, terrible crime that's been committed on the reservation. And uh, it, it echoes through the, the young character's life. All, all the way through to his maturity, from which he's looking back as he gives us this story. It, it's a, a departure for her because instead of being told in a chorus of voices, which is what she usually does, a kind of a round robin effect, this is all told from the voice of the young protagonist in yes, a very yes. Mark Twain kind of uh, way. And it really, you know, it really is a step forward for her. I mean, I've enjoyed many of her books, but. I've always had this little niggling question at the back of my mind, which is, oh, you know, all these voices tend to sound too too much alike. And in this case, she's really uh, sculpted a, a distinctive voice in a in a uh, in a character who is a kind of archetype, the young uh, young fellow going out in the world trying to understand his past so he can make his future. There's a hint of Huck Finn about him. And uh, he really measures up to that role, I think. It's, it's a terrific story. It, it reminded me, too, a bit of, of uh, some of Ray Bradbury's work with the, hmm. the quiet. The, there's a little bit of uh, 
fantasy happening around the edges. Maybe not fantasy. We don't really know, but it, it's an, you know a young man's perception. We look at the world in a magical way. All men do, <laughs> mm-hmm. and I think that 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 feel the kind of uh, nostalgia. I think that she builds in is that what what really struck me is having a kind of the Bradbury American feel. This is a very, very American novel. Only could be written in America, only could be set in America, and only could be written by an American. Yeah, but it's all, but it's also slightly off to the center because it focuses on, the, on Indian law and Indian tribal culture and uh, really shows how these people who are living in mainstream America as mainstream Americans have a slightly different vision of how life should proceed. And also, as a work of crime fiction, because at the center of it, it there is a crime, yeah. it's really, I think, innovative and interesting and fascinating and mm-hmm. intricate because all the differences of Indian law and tribal law and reservation law all depend on where things happen, what happens, when it happens. This creates for some wonderful complications just for a story about a crime and a victim. And unlike many crime stories, this really focuses on the victims. And I think that's a really unique um, upending of that kind of novel. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it's it's really quite terrific and and uh, fascinating. The voice finally reminds me uh, of some of Steinbeck's best narrators. Yeah, there, there's 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 another perfect comparison. Uh, people who are foreigners in our land, even though they're essentially totally American, that kind of a, a duality of perception, which uh, helps the rest of us see just how far and we all are on Earth, <laughs> right? It's a, it's a wonderful and visionary and entertaining work. And, and entertaining is also important. It's it's really an engrossing page-turner as well, I thought. Yeah. And they're wonderful characters, minor characters. The, the, the reservation priest, uh, I thought, was a terrific character. Um, the father is a, is a very, very wonderful character. And, and the narrator is a, is a real treasure, I think. It's a wonderful book. It's a great reading experience. You cannot go wrong with Louise Erdrich's The Roundhouse, I think. Now, our our next book um, has a has a is not this dissimilar in feel. The Orchardist. Mm -hmm. Uh, This is a a debut novel by Amanda Copland, and it has this a similar, I think, uh, landscape to it yeah. and uh well it's western novel yeah it's a western novel but it, it has that uh uh also a feel of a similar feel there's i guess the word is maybe elemental yeah yeah there's a actually there's a wonderful line towards the beginning um this orchard keeper named william talmage heads north with his uh as a boy as a child with his mother from the oregon territory this is around 1857 I think he's nine years old. He's with his mother and sister, and they they get into um, into Washington State. And there's this wonderful line. I mean, here it is. Um, they came through dense forest and stood on the rim of a valley, illuminated as if it was the end or the beginning of the world. I, I just thought that was wonderful, and and you really do get put put into a scene that is uh, a kind of genesis. For for modern the modern West the modern uh, Northwest, 
That's an interesting uh, perception. I, I really didn't pick up on that, but I think that that makes perfect sense because uh, this is one of those novels where the landscape and the setting is really of uh, a, a, a character. You know, I, I mean, think. he's domesticating the great forest by by attending his orchards, and he's, he brings commerce to the wild woods by selling his fruit, and uh, the business grows. And before we know it, uh, horse you know trips on horseback have changed to trips by train and car, um, and the modern world overtakes everybody. But the the, the so so you know the, it's this is the late frontier, uh, the pun on late I guess, but it's also got some wonderful characters. I mean the, these two runaway girls they've run away from this uh, monstrous backwoods pimp who uh, has impregnated them both. And uh, the orchardist, the orchard keeper, uh, takes them in, and we, we, he tries to help them. Bef- one of them doesn't make it. Uh, it's a devastating scene. Uh, I don't want to spoil that, but uh, then, then the other girl grows and uh, diverges from the path that the orchardist would like her to follow. But he remains devoted to her. So I mean, there's, there's wonderful themes of you know women wrestling with the world, trying to be free, uh, the place of the family on frontier life. I mean, just it reminded me on just about every page how uh, you know this deep sense of place can make for a deep sense of story and a deep sense of wonder too. It's it's really a, a nice bit of of world creation and you know one of the things that interested me something you said that he's taming the orchard but i think or the the forest with the orchard but i think also the reverse is happening Mm -hmm. in that the natural um the inescapable natural world no matter how much we run through it with railroads roads Mm -hmm. pave it over put put the orchards in it also tames us, and it also tames all of these characters, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. it imprints itself on them. And that's yeah. a really interesting thing to immerse yourself in this book to just see how paradox. Yes. Yeah. To and, and as you say, the characters are are wonderful. The prose is is fabulous. There's lots of sentences that you'll stop and say, "Wow, that was that was a good one." <laughs> this is this is quite a quite a a, a debut. I mean, it's a, a wonderful first novel. And you know the skeptic in me says, "Wow, this is all she's she's done wonderfully, but maybe this is all she can do." But if she can keep on in this as powerfully as she has in this book, well, this is the beginning of a really remarkable career for uh, for uh, a Western writer. Yeah, Amanda Copeland. Uh, uh, they they come out of nowhere, and the thing about books that makes this possible is that this is one person. All it takes is one person in a, mm-hmm. you know, some amount of time. And I think that's why we have such a steady stream of really fine reading, almost always available. Yeah, it's not like sports where, you know, you know what season it is and you know what you're probably going to get within certain parameters. It's always a surprise, always an amazing uh, sense of, of possibility. I mean, here we are. At the, it's the beginning of the new year. We're talking about these books that came out. Well, the, you know, in the fall of last year, and and uh, not really so far away. The Orchardist is, and the and and the Erdrich are as 
fresh in my mind as anything I've ever read. Yeah, and, and, and <clears throat> what's interesting too, I think, is that just the amount of good reading that you can find pretty easily, you don't have to <laughs> knock yourself out to do this, and how, as an art form, the novel and fiction writing and nonfiction, all of it, it there's a lot there, then there's always a lot there. You know, Lawrence, D.H. Lawrence, wrote a long time ago. He said, the novel is the one great book of life. And I think that's, you know, still true. I, I absolutely agree. Now, let's t- start to take a step. Uh, these first two books we talked about, I think, for some of the tinges of, you know, uh, oddness around the edges, they're solid works of really American realism. Yes. And the third book we're going to talk about, Snow Child, uh, is is not. I mean, right. it's it's a bit surreal, and I think it fits uh, very nicely into uh, something I've seen uh, developing more and more in the past year. Uh, yes, uh, what's that? A genre that I call the new strange. Hmm. Um, this about three or four years ago, uh, when we had a huge blossoming of really grotesque and wonderful writing by writers like China Mieville, they called it uh, this movement, The New Weird, and mm-hmm. their progenitors were in, is a form of fantasy, but instead of taking off from Tolkien, and who himself took off from Celtic myths and uh, Norse myths, instead of being secondhand Tolkien, these guys looked at um, Dickens and Mervyn Peake in particular. Mm-hmm. Yeah, actually, actually, interesting you mentioned Dickens, because he's got some of the weirdest stuff in the middle of his novels, like uh, spontaneous combustion characters just coming up in flame. <laughs> yeah, Dickens was Dickens had was uh, had lots of interesting uh, elements of the fantastic in his work. I mean, he's the yeah. author of arguably the most famous ghost story right. ever. So. Right, right. So you're thinking of writers like Kelly Link and and uh, Karen Joy Fowler. Uh, Karen Joy Fowler would 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 certainly mm-hmm. fit in them. And um, I for me the uh, the inception point of all this is a 1960s ghost uh, writer of ghost stories, mm-hmm. or what were called ghost stories, um, mm-hmm. Robert Aikman. Uh-huh. And he, though his stories were often published as ghost stories and considered that, he called them all strange stories. Uh, yeah, I don't know his work. I'll have to look it up. It's interesting. I mean, Henry James has a, a whole sequence of what he calls ghost stories. Um, it's... it's uh, what, what, so so, the, so the, 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 the trope has been around a while. The trope has been around, but what uh, interests me about Aikman and a, a number of these new writers who are deliberately following in his footsteps, calling their stories strange stories, yeah. is that uh, these guys are using the elements of the fantastic and mm-hmm. sometimes alternate histories and just creating new countries to uh, go after human psychology. Well, Borges, I mean, they, you, you can't not talk about this and not talk about Borges, too. Oh, no, yeah, Borges, Borges really slots in to uh, one of these uh, writers, a couple of these writers. Um, Mark Valentine and John Howard have an incredible collection of short stories out mm-hmm. called um, New Europe, and mm-hmm. it's set in early 20th century Europe, but not mm-hmm. the Europe we know. Huh. The, it, the, so it's like Le Guin's alternate country. 
It's, yeah, but it, it's very – their short stories are all very focused on very small, small subjects, small stories. I know that Mark Valentine has an interest in how stamps work. <laughs> so there are a couple of really interesting stories where post, uh, um, post, uh, postmasters keep old stamps and kind of view – or create new ones to change the way history works. <laughs> really, really fascinating looks at uh, kind of sociology. Now, let's talk about um, – well, wait before, before, but let me let me just. So, how do you see this uh, Swedish writer, uh, Karen Tidbeck, fitting into this? Which her, you know, she published that first book, Jagannath, this uh, fall, which I thought was really extraordinary. Oh, I agree. It's it's very. It, um, Karen Tidbeck is is I think on the edge. She's a little bit on more on the new weird, because <laughs> mm-hmm. her stuff is fairly grotesque. Yeah. Um. But I, she also, the way she fits into it, I would say, is that like these other writers, Mark Valentine, mm-hmm. Reggie Oliver, the uh, and Robert Aikman, and uh, some of these other guys who are writing for Tartarus Press and Black uh, or Swan River Press, mm-hmm. they all are trying to use the fantastic to externalize very specific kind of psychological matters. To talk That's really, really interesting. You know, so ultimately, it's a new kind of realism. But it is realism. There's a there's a Japanese writer uh, named Yoko Ogawa who's got a book of stories out uh, next month. Maybe we can talk about it next month. Called Revenge, uh, just brilliant, and it works in that same way. I, I really like that. Now, um, one of Robert Aikman wrote mostly short stories for his for all of his life, and he has some some mm-hmm. very classic ones. But he wrote one novel mm-hmm. uh, of the Fantastic called The Model, mm-hmm. and that was set in Russia. Mm-hmm. And based on Russian fairy tales, and that brings us back to the Snow Child. Ah, the Snow Child's been melting while we've been <laughs> well, yakking I've been, here, uh, talking about the new strange. Uh, let's talk about this beautiful book that is that is weird yeah. and, and lovely at the same time. Yeah, set in on the Alaskan frontier in the 1920s. Uh, the author is Yon Ivy. Yeah, and uh, Ivy E Y for you radio listeners. Um, and it's this couple who've tried. They've come from Massachusetts to try and homestead, and they're childless, um, and they're not having a very good first year or two on the frontier. And uh, I think the, the woman is slightly on the, the verge of hysteria, and the man is on the verge of sort of uh, turning introversion into a kind of uh, shadow world of his own imagining. All he does is physical labor. Um, and then, in a kind of celebratory way, at first snowfall, they build a snow child on the lawn, and suddenly this child appears on their property. And it, it, when when that happens, I thought, you know, I'm not big for fairy tales, but I thought, oh no, this is a terrible flaw. But it turns out to be uh, a wonderfully unifying element because the girl is real and yet she seems linked to the the the, the snow girl snow child that they, this couple has built on their lawn in really interesting ways both psychological and extra psychological and um, it, she she is a, an extraordinary character um, really gives the book a kind of life that uh, is rare in a, in a first novel and a lot of this has to do too with the wonderful prose 
And this is a, as you say, this is a tough road to hoe when you have something, um, uh, a novel of the that's weird and has these kind of uh, fairy tale elements, but they ultimately turn out to be kind of uh, positive. To make that work in the right way, it takes a lot of uh, really great prose, and uh, Ivy pulls that prose off and writes this in a beautiful, delicate, but also dark, you know, shot through with darkness, and that's what, you know, makes it, made it work for me. Yes, yeah, so I'm sorry, go ahead. The absolute, uh, the perfect joining of the realistic and the perceptions of these people, which are all somewhat, you know, loaded with their emotions and tending towards fantasy. They're already in a fantasy world mm-hmm. before anything fantastic even starts. Yeah, yeah. It's a, a world of uh, strange illusions, especially when night settles over the forest. And um, she yokes the real and the, uh, the surreal in a really successful way, I think. And, and I think that's what, for me, is the real interest in the power of all these writers of the the new, what I call the new strange, mm-hmm. it's just a little bit strange, mm-hmm. but it allows us uses those little bits of strangeness to get into our minds and get into our perceptions. And you know, ultimately, when you're when you close a book like this, you look back and think, well, you know, you realize how much of a world of the fantastic each of us lives in, even though we think we're living in a very you know workaday mundane mm-hmm. world. Right. We're all uh, living in some kind of uh, odd fantasy, and it's yeah. when you have that uh, just turned up, just t- tad. Our fantasy is that literature means more than anything else. Now, <laughs> <laughs> well, that's something that uh, through hard work and lots of reading and lots of great books and bringing the attention of our listeners to those great books, we can uh, hope to change. Read all about it. Read all about it, and you can hear our next uh, installment next month. I've been speaking with Alan Shoes. His latest novel is A Song of Slaves in the Desert. His latest ebook is Paradise or Eat Your Face. It's a trio of novellas. And his latest work of nonfiction is A Trance After Breakfast. And I think that's what we have both just enjoyed. Thank you for joining me, Alan. Thanks, Rick, and Happy New Year. You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.